the last uh, lesson in our Faith and Doubt series. And hopefully it's been encouraging to you, it's been uplifting to you, hopefully it's been challenging to you as much as it has been for me. And as I've said from the outset of this series, this is not about choosing faith or doubt. This is not about being on one side of the spectrum or the other. This series is not called Faith or Doubt, it's called Faith and Doubt. Because it's not about, uh, yeah, is, is the goal to be people who walk in complete trust and faith? Yes. But the last time I checked, we are all human, and we are all going to slip up, and we're all going to have some doubts and uncertainties along this journey of faith that we are all on. And so the, the, the point of this series is not to say, yeah, you need to eradicate all doubt. I mean, yeah, that's the goal at some point, but really the point of this series has been to help us and encourage us to walk in faith in the midst of our doubts, to say, hey, these are here. This is what I'm dealing with, but I'm going to push forward in faith anyways. I'm going to walk by faith and trust in Jesus, even in the midst of my doubts. And so that's kind of where we're going to wrap things up today. If you were with us, I want to kind of give a little bit of a refresher. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we uh, talked about, if you remember, the idea of a circus. I talked to you about one of the authors that I love, Henry Nouwen talks about how much he loves the circus and specifically he really enjoyed the high flying trapeze act. And if you remember that sermon, and if you don't, you can go back and listen to it. I'm not going to rehash everything, but we talked about flyers and catchers, and I, I just wanted to put that image back in your mind of the trapeze and flying and catching and all of that that we talked about as we wrap up our series today and kind of wrap up today's lesson. Uh, but when it comes to that high-flying trapeze act, there are basically three moves, right? I, I mean, there's more to it than that, but there's basically three moves. There's letting go of the trapeze. There's waiting and then there's being caught. And I think faith is a lot letting go, letting go of control, letting go of what we want, letting go of our own desires and, and, and pursuits and waiting and being caught by our Lord and our Savior. And Jesus comes to this earth and he lives that way. He shows us how to operate in that way. It's not easy, but he shows us how to live that way. He lets go of life in heaven. He lets go of his glory. He lets go of his power. He lets go of his heavenly riches. He's born in a stable to a little obscure, impoverished family, two parents. He grows up in a blue-collar family working as a carpenter, and then he joy, or starts a traveling ministry, teaching and healing. Then, ultimately, he lets go of his ministry, lets go of his disciples, and even lets go of his own life. And when it comes to letting go, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but that word trapeze, that the, the trapeze, the high-flying artists that they hold on to before they let go and fly in the air and wait, that, that, that word trapeze actually comes from the Greek word, which actually means table, which seems like nothing to do with a trapeze, right? But I find that interesting that when Jesus gathers around his disciples, that last Lord's Supper that we call it. We are going to share in that in a few moments, the, the symbols that he painted for us and what, he, what that means for us and the example that he set for us. We're going to share in that. But when he gathered his disciples around that, that table, that, that word is trapeza. And it's at that table, that trapeza, that he teaches them that he will have to let go of his life for them. And that the only way on to one's life, truly, is to let it go. And on the cross, that's exactly what he does. He lets go of his life for you and for me and for all of mankind. And when he did that, 
not only was he saving us, but he's talking to us and showing us an example of what it looks like to trust. Because first of all, as I just alluded to a moment ago, part of trusting is letting go. That's part of what we've been talking about in this series. Like we, part of looking for the answers and having to know every single answer and be certain without a doubt is us grasping for control. And yet part of trusting is letting go. And God comes to you and he comes to me, to all of us, and he says, will you let go? God came to Abraham. He said, let go of everything familiar. Let go of your family, your home, your culture, and go where I'm going to tell you to go. Will you do that, Abraham? Will you let go? Rich young ruler came to Jesus one day and asked him, how do I attain eternal life? How how do I get to where I want to go? Jesus says, let go. Let go of your trapeze. For that rich young ruler, his trapeze was money and possessions and stuff, the things of this world. Jesus says, will you sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and come follow me? Will you let go? Jesus spoke to a woman in an adulterous affair and he said, go and sin no more. Will you let go of that relationship that dishonors God? And so what about us? What do do we need to let go of? What is God calling you or, or me to let go of? Well, the answer is anything, anything that gets in the way of us following him. Anything that gets in the way of us submitting to him. Let go of that relationship if it dishonors God. Let go of that attachment to money and stuff and the things of this world. Let go of your power and be a servant. Let go of that addiction. Let go of that habit. Admit it. Get help. Let go of your ego. Let go of your pride, your disobedience, your selfishness. Whatever it may be, God comes to each and every one of us and says, let go. And then he says, wait. Because not only is letting go part of trusting, but also part of trusting is waiting. I don't know if that's the harder part. Neither one of these are easy. And here's the deal. Nobody likes to wait. We don't like to let go and we don't like to wait. We live in a microwave, fast food, instant this, instant that, give it to me and give it to me right now kind of world. I won't ask you to raise your hand. How many of you complain by having to wait in the fast food line, right? Just think about the irony of even that. Waiting is not something we enjoy. Oftentimes, waiting is torture. But when that flyer lets go of the trapeze, there's really nothing they can do at that point except to wait, right? One of the names that comes to mind when I think about this idea of waiting is someone I mentioned just a moment ago by the name of Abraham. We find a story in the book of Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God comes to Abraham, and he says, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's a wonderful promise that God gives to Abraham says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And part of how that's going to happen is that he's going to have a son by his wife, Sarah. And on top of that, God tells Abraham to leave his home and to go where he will guide him. I was reading about one of the common experiences of Westerners, particularly missionaries who go into foreign countries. 
and especially this particular one was talking about jungle sections of the Amazon. And so they will typically ask members of a village to give them directions on where they want to go. And the villager, obviously who lives there, knows precisely the directions that he needs to give to that missionary to get him where he needs to go. But the villager will often offer to take them. So the missionary doesn't know where to go. The villager knows where to go. Missionary, missionary asks him, you know, hey, can you just give me directions? And the villager's, no, no I'm, I, I need to take you. And the villager's like, or the missionary's like, no, just give me directions. Just tell me where to go and I will, you know, get there. I've got a compass. I've got a map. Just, just tell me directions. I, you know, give me the coordinates and, and, and I, I can get there. And the villagers are like, no, it doesn't work that way. I can get you there, but I must take you myself. You must follow me. And I think about that example because the reality is we prefer directions, right? Unless you're a guy and that's another story. But we prefer directions, principles, steps, keys, guidelines. We prefer those things in part not because we necessarily want to follow them, but we prefer them because in some ways they leave us in control. We can, we can choose if we want to follow that direction or that direction or whatever it may be. But if we have directions, I can choose and it leaves me in control. If I'm holding the map, I'm still in charge of the trip. If I have a guide, I have to trust. I have to follow. I have to relinquish control. That's why ultimately we don't simply need directions. We need a guide. Or more specifically, we need the guide. Now, to Abraham's credit, when God tells him to go, he goes. But he still has to do some waiting for that son. And that's the hard part. For over two decades, in fact, Abraham waits. Question, how well do you think Abraham waits? Now, if you know the story, then you know the answer is not very well. Let me just run through what happens, give you the highlights. After Abraham goes where God wants him to go, there is a famine in the land. And so Abraham takes his wife, Sarah, to Egypt. And as they're about to enter into Egypt, he says to her, Sarah, you are a beautiful woman, which that's not a bad thing to say. But then it goes downhill from there because he says, Sarah, you are a beautiful woman. But when Pharaoh sees you, he's going to want you for himself, and he might kill me to get to you. And so let's just pretend that you are my sister. That way, if he takes you for himself, I'll still be okay. Now, that's not exactly husband of the year material, but it works. And in fact, years later, Abraham and Sarah run into the same or very similar situation, and Abraham says, hey, that worked this time. I'll do it again. Effective. But just because something's effective doesn't make it right, right? How many of us can attest to that? I can do something and it may be effective, but that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make me showing my faith just because I do something that works in the moment. Speaking of years later, after God's initial promise to Abraham, he still has no son. And neither he nor Sarah are very happy about it. So Sarah says to him, you know, God's not working fast enough. Let's take things into our own Hands. And so Sarah gives her Egyptian servant Hagar to Abraham to be his wife, thinking that maybe she can build a family through her. Abraham very unwisely accepts, agrees. Sure enough, Hagar gets pregnant by Abraham. She has a son. Of course, probably not all that surprising. Abraham and Sarah's actions lead to a big mess. 
Eventually, Hagar and her son Ishmael are kicked out. And so Abraham and waiting, not so well. Years later from that point, in Genesis chapter 17, God comes to Abraham again. He says, you and your wife Sarah are going to have a son. And you would think Abraham just receives those words full of trust and faith, right? Not exactly. Verse 17 says, Abraham fell face down and laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And you read those words and you're like, I can't really blame Abraham for feeling that way. God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham falls down laughing at God's promise. Keep forward, moving forward to the story, in the story, to Genesis chapter 18. God comes to Abraham again and says to him, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah is listening to this conversation. She knows that Abraham and her are not exactly spring chicks anymore. She's well past the age of giving birth to children. And so when she hears this, she laughs to herself, thinking these are the words that, um, uh, that the writer of Genesis writes, after I'm worn out and my husband is old, now this thing is going to happen, right? That's her thought process. And then I find this next little conversation quite comical if you've never read this before. God says to Abraham, um, excuse me, but why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I am old? I mean, is anything too hard? For me, the Lord, verse 15 says that Sarah was afraid, and so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. And God says, yes, you did laugh. It's like, did not, did too, did not, did too. Do you know who you're arguing with? This is God here. But that's waiting. And Abraham doesn't do it very well. And my guess is we can probably relate. He doubts. He deceives. He tries to take things into his own hands. He screws up royally. God says, let go. And Abraham says, okay, but then he waits, but not well. And then after years and years and years of waiting, he's finally caught. God fulfills his promise to Abraham. Sarah finds out one day after years and years that she's finally pregnant. Can you imagine that day? Imagine how she tells Abraham. Can you imagine how they laugh that time after laughing the times before? A woman her age getting pregnant. I mean, what are the chances? And so she gives birth to a son and they name him Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means? He laughs. So appropriate, right? They named the boy, he laughs. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, it's not every day that a 90-year-old woman gives birth. But regardless of how badly they waited, regardless of how much they screwed up, regardless of how much they doubted, God still shows up anyway. And in the end, their laughter and their tears are finally turned to joy. And really, when you get down to it, that's faith. Like that's Abraham's journey is a journey that in one way or another we're all familiar with because it's not a straight line and it's not a flat line. It's crooked and it's got some ups and downs along the way. Some are bigger than others, but that's faith. You let go and you wait and usually not very well on either one of those things and you get caught. And there's no way to God, there is no way to God that bypasses that call to let go and to wait. Now we're going to have some doubts 
And we're going to have some uncertainties along the way. As I just said, and as we've talked about throughout this series, and I've tried to emphasize it again and again in this series, that's why it's so important for us to be honest about those doubts and honest about those uncertainties, to talk about them, to study God's word. What does he have to say? What does he have to teach us? How do we contradict some of those things? How do we give promises in the midst of that? How do we find refreshment and encouragement even in the midst of our doubts and our uncertainties? What does God have to teach us? But in the end, thinking and studying alone never removes the need to choose. Never removes the need to choose. The question of faith, if you really get down to it, is never just an intellectual decision. Because you're never going to have all the answers. And if you make it an intellectual decision, I think that says less about your intellect and more about your heart. Because it's really never just an intellectual decision. It comes only when you and I say, you know what? I may have doubts. I may not have a 100% certainty. But I'm going to put my trust in Jesus and follow him and let go. I find it quite interesting that the last words used to describe the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew... One of our last glimpses of the men who followed Jesus for three years, gave their lives to him, loved him, learned from him. He loved them. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 17, it says this. Then the 11 disciples went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. We get that part. But then these next three words are just, I don't know how to wrap my head around it. But some doubted. They've seen Jesus, listened to him, followed him, studied him, studied with him, studied from him, (laughs) seen him crucified, seen him resurrected. And one of the last things we read about them is that some doubted. And Matthew doesn't cover this up. He points it out. And it gets even better because on top of that, Jesus doesn't just say, Get out of here. I'm done with you guys. He goes on to give them what we know as the Great Commission. Right after that, Jesus speaks to them. Here's what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'm, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus looks at these worshiping doubters and says, go risk your lives for me. Go change your world for me. Go out there and preach and teach and make disciples. He sends them out to be his ambassadors in the world, even in the midst of their doubts. How crazy does that sound? And yet that's reality. That's life. That's faith. Because the reality, I I hope you, this is not in your notes, but I probably should should have put it in there. The reality is disciples aren't people who never doubt. I know mom always told me, you know, she's a teacher. Don't use double negatives. I'm going to use it. This Disciples aren't people who never doubt. I hope you realize that. It, I hope that's one of the things that you've got. To be a disciple doesn't mean that you don't ever doubt, that you don't ever have bumps in the road, that you don't ever come across uncertainties and you think, can I trust God here? I mean, I know he's been faithful and I want to follow him, but this just doesn't make sense. 
And I'm not 100% certain. That's just not reality. We doubt and worship. We doubt and serve. We doubt and we help each other with our doubts. We doubt and we just keep pressing forward. We doubt and we wait for our doubts one day to be turned into knowing. Waiting's really hard. And we may go through some times where we wonder if we can wait for God anymore. Some of you may be there right now. But I guess in those times, I know this is not an easy question to answer when you're going through it, but, but maybe some perspective will help us come to this idea. If you don't wait for him, the question becomes, what are you going to wait for? Does that make sense? And if you're not waiting for him, then what are you waiting for? Because we're all waiting for something. Whether we think we are or not, whether we want to or not, whether we're intentional about it or not, whether we believe it or not, we're all waiting. And if it's not for God, then what is it that we're waiting for? The truth is that we're all born holding on to a little trapeze. A little trapeze we call life. Each and every one of you are, myself included. We hold on to it rather tightly, most of us. Our security, our okayness, our success, our importance, our worth, our stuff, our bodies, our health, our influence, the list goes on and on. And Jesus comes along and he says to each of us, you can let go of all of that. You can let go of your life. You know why? Because someone is holding it. You can die to all the things that would keep you from living in my kingdom from truly having life, both in this life and life eternal. And what you'll find in doing so is that you really haven't died to anything that really matters in the end. So just let go. And whether you believe him or not, one day, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next year, maybe 10 years from now, maybe 50 years from now, I don't know. One day, I promise you that, I don't know a lot, but I know this. One day, you will let go of that trapeze called life. Your life. And so will I. One day, you will take your last breath. And your hands will go slack. And the trapeze will fall from your hands. And the real question is, what happens then? Some believe that's the end. That's just it. The neurons that you mistakenly think add up to a soul will just stop firing on that day and six trillion or so atoms that were employed by your body will find positions in a somewhere else in the universe will neither know nor care. But what if there's something more? What if there really is a God who sent his son to live and to die for us? And that after three days in the tomb, he was resurrected. What if after we die because of what God has done for us, we have the opportunity, the promise to one day be with him forever? A couple weeks ago, we talked about how sometimes we have to make decisions that require 100% commitment to something even though we don't want, have 100% certainty. In fact, there's probably way more decisions that we make that fall into that category than we often realize. Where we have to give 100% commitment without 100% certainty. And for most of the important decisions in life, that, that's almost always the case. For example, let's just say before you get married, you think, you know, I'm, I'm human. 
I'll put this on me. I won't put this on you. I, I, I'm human. I, I, I have no guarantees here, but I know I want to marry this person. I'm 95% certain I have a very low doubt level. I'm not sure everything's going to work out. I mean, I, I know this person well. I don't know them fully, but I'm human, and there's still some doubt there. 95%. Now imagine that as Marcy and I were saying our vows on our wedding day, and I'm making my commitment to her. Imagine if I said, honey, I'm going to give you a good, solid 95% commitment in our marriage. I'll be like 95% faithful to you. I just want to hold out that 5% just in case things don't work out. How do you think that would have gone over, right? Not good. That is the correct answer, sir. But when we stand up there and we make those vows, what we say is that all that I am, all that I have, I give to you. Amen. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, sickness and in health, I'm going to love you. I'm going to cherish you. I am 95% in. I'm all in. I'm all in. I don't know, I don't know everything the future holds. That's why we say in sickness and in health. Nobody says in health for richer, and what's the other one? I wrote it down. Uh, and for better, right? I mean, that's what we're hoping for, that's, but life doesn't go that way. And so we say, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm all in. And what matters then, hear me, what matters then is not certainty about exactly how things are going to work out, right? Because if you had it, you'd, if you had it, you probably wouldn't jump in, right? And if you're waiting for it, you'll never jump in. What matters is not certainty. What matters is faithfulness. Because when certainty is not possible, faithfulness is still on the table. And faithfulness matters far more. Than certainty. Faithfulness matters far more than certainty. God never calls us to be certain. God calls us to trust him, to be faithful to him, even in the midst of our uncertainty and doubt. As I said at the outset of this series, I don't have all the answers, which is probably not a surprise to most of you, if not all of you but I know the one who does. Now, he may not give us all the answers that we want this side of the grave, but no matter who you are or what you are going through, if you give your life to him, you can rest assured that he will see you through it. And when you let go, you can trust that he will be there to catch you. There's a lot of doubts in life that he will catch you, it's not one. There is no doubt about that. 